This is Boss Ladies. So I'm so excited to welcome Dr. Wendy Suzuki onto Boss Ladies because she is such a boss lady. She's a professor of neuroscience and psychology in the Center for Neuroscience at NYU. And she actually was recently appointed Dean of the Arts and Sciences School at NYU, which is phenomenal and so cool. She's researched the brain-changing effects of exercise. And there's actually a TED Talk, which was the second most viewed TED Talk in 2018. So everyone should go watch it. She also has a phenomenal book, which everyone should go get, which is called Good Anxiety, Harnessing the Power of the Most Misunderstood Emotion. So I have the book here. You can see it and you should all go check it out because if you're anything like me and you have anxiety, it is very exciting to know that there is a way to actually use it for good. So highly recommend checking it out. But yeah, for today's episode, you know, we talk about good anxiety. We talk about how we can actually turn bad anxiety into good anxiety and use that for our own benefit, especially as boss ladies in the workplace, some strategies that we can use when kicking off a meeting or being in a meeting to most effectively maximize our brain potential and also reduce anxiety. We also talk about exercise. And like I said, the sort of brain changing effects it can have her mentors. We talk about her career journey, as well as just advice she has for boss ladies and the next generation of boss ladies. And she's such a boss lady. This was such a fun interview. And I am so excited to share it with you all. So I am so lucky to have Dr. Wendy Suzuki on boss ladies today. Thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show. Sure. My pleasure. So why don't you start by telling us a little bit about your career journey to that sort of has led you to NYU? Sure. So um, I uh, it's it was a pretty you know um, traditional journey. There was a very very specific day that I decided that I wanted to be a neuroscientist, and that was the very first day of my freshman year. Uh, I was a freshman at UC Berkeley, and I had signed up for a freshman seminar. And just by the title. So mm -hmm. you just choose the topic that sounds interesting. And so the course that I took was called The Brain and Its Potential. Like, oh, that sounds interesting. I don't know anything about the brain. And I walk into this classroom. There's only, you know, 15 undergraduates and this, this full professor. Her name was Marion Diamond. And I didn't know at the time, but very, very prestigious scientist, you know, award-winning teacher. And she starts telling us about how the brain is so extraordinary and how it was defining everything about us and how we saw the world and mm -hmm. how we felt about the world and how we laughed about the world was all defined by our brains. But then she had this hat box on the desk in front of her and she very slowly and dramatically opened that hat box and with her gloved hand, she pulled out a real preserved human brain to the awe of all of the <laughs> freshmen in that class. I mean, nobody had seen a real human brain and there it was right in front of us. Wow. And um, so, you know, talk about a, uh, a memorable moment. So that's seared into my memory. <laughs> and um, I, I just thought, I, I wanna study that. I wanna understand that. And in particular, she told us about how she studied how the brain can change and grow in response to the environment. It's called brain plasticity. Mm -hmm. uh, that's the most interesting thing I've ever heard in my whole life. And now I really want to study. And th that was just the first day wow. of my freshman seminar. So I left going, okay, I want to be her. I want to study <laughs> what she studies. I want to be just like her. 
And, um, and so I finished my undergraduate. I worked in her lab, of course. Um, I, uh, I went to graduate school uh, studying a particular form of brain, brain plasticity, kind of a uh, very common form called uh, long-term memory. Mm-hmm. It's the most common form. It's it, something, the environment, some teacher asks you to learn something and you learn something, you're at, your brain actually changes. And then from there, I went to graduate school and postdoc and um, and I got my job at NYU in 1998. So um, yeah, pretty, pretty traditional path, but a very kind of started with a bang mm-hmm. that first day of my freshman year. And you have sort of talked to me a little bit when we had our previous chat about how you sort of have made a pivot from, you know, staying in that yeah. lab and studying, you know, working in the lab and continuing yeah. to study versus teaching and, yeah. and writing. Can you talk a little yeah. bit about that? Sure, sure. So, you know, I became a neuroscientist because I've always loved teaching. And so, you know, Marion Diamond was just this, this extraordinary teacher. So I thought, I want to learn how to do that. She was an extraordinary scientist that studied the brain and I wanted to do that. And so you know, it takes a while to, to, to learn how to do that well. And so I, I focused the first, which is what you're supposed to do when you're academic, you're supposed to do good science, do great science, be a great teacher. And I focused on that for, you know, the first 10 years, uh, got that under my belt and, and really feeling good about that and, and starting to ask some really interesting questions. Um, but something caught my interest kind of in the middle of that process. I was working so hard to try and get tenure because um, in academia, you get six years to prove yourself. Mm-hmm. And then you, after six years, you say, here's what I did. And you wait for all your colleagues to judge you and either <laughs> say, you can join the club for the rest of your life. That would be great. Or we fire you and you have to leave in humiliation. So, you know, no big deal. Just, yeah, just a just little the, bit of stress and anxiety, if you will. <laughs> so, um, and yes, I, I was stressed and I absolutely did not use the right approach, which was just put my head down and work hard all the time and only work. Mm-hmm. And um, don't cook, don't, don't, you know, go to Broadway shows, uh, don't, uh, uh, don't make friends. <laughs> and so that's what I was trying to do. I mean, I had a, I had a great lab life and we had a great group of people in the lab and that was fun. But um, I was eating takeout all the time and I was kind of comforting myself with all the amazing food in New York. And suddenly I turned around and I, I had gained 25 pounds. Oh, no, <laughs> what am I going to do? And I didn't have any friends. And, and I was uh, actually uh, kind of unhappy, mm-hmm. actually really unhappy if I was being honest. Mm-hmm. And so um, I had this wake up call when I went on a river rafting trip. I, I gave myself a vacation and um, I went by myself because I had no friends. Mm-hmm. So I went on this river rafting vacation by myself, but there were lots of other people there. Mm -hmm. And um, I found myself in this beautiful location, Peru, the Cotahuasi River, and I was the weakest person on the whole trip. I mean, there were 16-year-olds that had better upper body strength than I did. And so I like shamed myself. Nobody said, Wendy, you, you have terrible upper body strength. <laughs> I would hope but not. I, like, oh my God, I have no upper body strength. And everybody else is, is you know, in much better shape. And so, okay, can't have that. So I came back and I said, I need to get into shape. I really want to lose this weight. And I went to the gym and I started working out. And I luckily, I found that I loved going to these exercise classes, probably because the first exercise class that I went to, my body said, 
thank you. You know, I've been waiting for you to move your body and we're going to make you feel really good about that after your workout. And I felt so good after that workout. And it was an aha finding moment. something that was really, yeah, aha, aha moment. And so fast forward a year and a half, I had lost the 25 pounds feeling so good. I became a gym rat and I found all the classes that I loved. And, um, I remember this day sitting in my office, uh, writing a grant, which is usually just a terribly difficult thing mm -hmm. to do. It's, it's hard. It's stressful. Um, and this thought went through my mind that had never gone through my mind before, um, when writing a grant. And that thought was, gee, grant writing went well today. <laughs> and I thought, oh my God, that has never happened before. What's going on? This is a weird day. Maybe I'm just, you know, lucky. It's a good day. Mm -hmm. uh, once in a lifetime, you could have a one day where you feel like you, you wrote well. But the truth was that writing seemed to be getting better. I seemed to have um, better focus for that writing session. That mm -hmm. seemed to be one of the things that, that was helping me. But when I thought about it, I felt like my memory was working better. It's like I was feeling good. I was in a better mood. I'd lost 25 pounds. And I could remember all those details that I was trying to put together in my multi-million dollar NIH grant. And um, then I said, well, gee, the only thing that I've changed in my life is this regular exercise. Let me go see what we know about the effects of exercise on the brain. And it turns out, what, what did we know? Well, it improves your mood. I learned from the studies that I read that there's evidence that your memory gets better and there's some evidence that your focus gets better. It's like, oh my God, that's exactly what's happening to me. <laughs> but there were a lot of details mm -hmm. that still weren't there, like how much do you need? Mm -hmm. What if you're low fit? What if you're mid fit? What if you're 20? What if you're 60? Mm -hmm. What are the differences? What, wh how can we um, change this in the middle of, you know, we have a obesity crisis mm -hmm. uh, today as well as uh, back in that time that I was making these uh, um, discoveries or deciding to change. And so not overnight, but I got more and more interested in the effects of physical activity on your brain to enhance mood and cognitive function. And eventually I ended up switching from my memory work that I got tenure. So I was successful in getting tenure. So that was good. Congrats. But I was like, hmm, may, thank you. <laughs> but maybe, maybe there's something else I want to study. Mm -hmm. And so that doesn't happen very often. After you get tenure, this was actually after I became a full professor. I said, you know what? Here's what I really want to study. And so since then, I've been studying not just exercise, but other experiences, other interventions that make our brains work better. That is what's really interesting to me. I love that. And that is such an amazing story and journey. And I love that your personal experience tied so clearly into what you were passionate about studying. And just to call yeah. out, you know, you have a TED talk on this and it was the second most viewed TED talk in 2018. And also one of my favorite yeah. TED talks I've ever seen. So oh. my mom and I actually, <laughs> we, I rewatched it last night with my mom and we were sitting in the car waiting for um, some takeout and we were like doing our punches together. It was really fun. Um, but, That's you know, great. so many people in the workplace especially in the remote world, um, are glued yeah. to their computers, constantly yeah. overwhelmed with information too, right? When I stop looking at my computer for a second to take a break from work, I pick up my phone and all of a sudden I'm looking through Instagram um, just to go right. back to my computer. You know, how would yeah. you sort of, to use your words, prescribe exercise um, to those folks and, and what are the short-term and long-term values that they're going to get out of making the effort to try and interrupt that information overload and screen time. Yeah. 
So that's such a great question. So let me start with um, how to approach. What should be your exercise mindset? Mm -hmm. And first thing, please eliminate the idea that to exercise means I have to pull on my expensive Lululemon or my <laughs> other fancy Lycra clothes and go to the gym and and you know lift weights or do those you know classic gym things. The thing that we know is that. Moving your body evolutionarily is good for you. It doesn't mean you have to do it at the gym. So the walking that you do, mm -hmm. I, I I can't tell you how many people have come up to me sheepishly and said, oh, I don't I don't work out at all. I'm sorry, am I allowed to talk to you? I'm like, <laughs> yes, do you walk? Uh, oftentimes these are New Yorkers and I know they walk. Yeah. So that walking is part of it. And I think part of the secret sauce is to make that body movement, both something that you do regularly. It's not like this new thing. Oh, let me learn this new exercise where I have to use balls and arrows and weird things. Mm -hmm. And you're never going to do that. But if it's walking, if it's walking with your dog, if it's walking with your husband, with your wife, with your friends, um, going walking to the museum, uh, or if you're in the suburbs, you know, going driving to the park and then walking in the park. Mm -hmm. Make it something that that you already have some history with, that you already like. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's dancing in the living room to your <laughs> favorite song. That absolutely counts too. And one of the benefits that I saw coming out of the pandemic is that all those online workouts mm -hmm. and all those phone-based workouts got really, really good. Mm -hmm. Those That industry got good at engaging through the phone, through the computer. And I, I changed, that saved my life. You know, I do online workouts every day and it just saves so much time. Mm -hmm. And there's this great variety just on YouTube alone. You know, you can get all these free workouts and find the level and the duration that you like. So there's a lot of flexibility there. So if you think uh, my, my uh, so the answer to the first question, broaden your mind. Um, uh, let me add in gardening there, getting on your knees, digging in there. That That's a physical activity that's outside, something you probably love anyway. That counts as well. Mm -hmm. So open your mind to what counts as physical activity. That's answer number one. Answer number two, how much do you need to get these benefits? Mm -hmm. This is the first thing that I noticed, but it also, I've, I've found this is true in the studies that I've done. Everybody wants to know, what is the least I have to do to actually get a benefit? Okay? And I'm going to tell you the answer. This is the answer that everybody wants to know. And the quickest, most reliable benefit comes from 10 minutes of walking. And what does that do? That significantly elevates your mood states. So it both increases your positive mood states and decreases your negative mood states like depression mm -hmm. and anxiety. So this is why you might have already noticed this. You're feeling bad, you're, you know, and you go for a walk. You say, oh, I actually feel better. So, so what's true. happening there? Yeah. So, and this leads into the long-term benefit. Mm -hmm. So that, that, that's the uh, immediate, easiest thing that you could do. 10 minutes of walking, anybody can do it. You don't even have to change your clothes. But let me give you an image mm -hmm. to tell you why that works. And it works because every single time we move our body, you are changing the neurochemical environment in your brain. There are actually factors that are going from your muscles and your liver through the blood-brain barrier into your brain. Mm -hmm. And those factors are increasing um, neurotransmitter levels in your brain. Neurotransmitters like serotonin and dopamine and endorphins. Everybody's heard of those. Those are the ones that are the mood-boosting yeah, reward. 
Yeah, it makes you happy. <laughs> that is why you feel better after a 10 minute walk. But the other thing that goes up with movement, and this goes up, it tends, it seems like it, it's goes, I mean, it seems like studies suggest that you need more aerobic mm-hmm. activity to get this next chemical up in your brain is growth factors. Growth factors are really important because those are the factors that will work to change the actual anatomy mm-hmm. of your brain, either growing new brain cells in a brain area called the hippocampus, if you continue this for a long term, or um, growing new synapses in your prefrontal cortex, important for focusing your attention. So the image that I want to leave everybody with is that every single time you move your body, you're giving your brain this wonderful bubble bath of neurochemicals. That's what like helps make wake me up in the morning to do my workout. Like I want to give my brain that bubble bath. And that short bubble bath, 10-minute walking is going to increase that dopamine and, and make you feel better. Mm-hmm. But higher level aerobic workout and done over a long time is going to give you a bubble bath more regularly and going to increase the amount of growth factors in that bubble bath. That growth factor, that's what's going to go to your hippocampus and grow brand new brain cells. Now, this is your long-term memory area. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm visualizing everybody out there. How many of you out there listening to this wonderful podcast want brand new shiny hippocampal cells in your hippocampus? I mean, I definitely do. <laughs> I do. Yes, everybody should raise their hand right now. And how many people want a bigger, fatter, fluffier prefrontal cortex so they can focus their attention on what needs to be focused on? Yes, everybody's yeah. raising their hand again. That That is why everybody should be interested in how to get more mm-hmm. physical activity into their life because it has a direct effect on how big and fat and fluffy and happy your brain is. That's the easiest message that I uh, that I have to give to everybody and, and is literally my motivation to work out daily. Can that also help heal with, you know, if you've had incidents or impact to your brain or anything like that? Is absolutely. that what helps fix absolutely. that long term? Yes, yes, absolutely. Amazing. And uh, of course, I, I'm not a clinician, so, so please check with your doctor. But, you know, stroke victims, uh, cancer victims. Uh, I've worked with traumatic brain injury groups at the New York, uh, NYU Medical Center. Um, all of that, getting them, uh, those those kinds of patients to move more. Mm-hmm. Um, what does that do? It makes you feel better. Yeah. It, uh, uh, it increases neuro growth factors in your brain. Um, that is very, very helpful generally for healing, but specifically we know those effects on the hippocampus and prefrontal cortex. That is amazing. And thank you for sharing that. I I want to sort of pivot because you have some amazing work as well on anxiety and how we yeah. actually have good anxiety. So I guess my first question for you is, can you differentiate for us uh, good anxiety versus bad anxiety and how should our actions sure. change accordingly? Let's start with the thing that everybody knows, bad anxiety. <laughs> that is the annoying anxiety we all have. We've all felt during multiple times during this pandemic. What is it? Let me give my simple definition. My simple definition of anxiety is that feeling of fear and worry that typically comes 
in uncertain situations. So one can understand why everybody has lots of anxiety these days. Global pandemic, we don't know what COVID-19 is, how it works, what it does. I'm talking about the beginning, of course, we know much more now. (laughs) But that, you know, heightened it. What am I going to do? I can't go to work. What's going to happen? What does a shutdown mean? What does a lockdown mean? Enormous amounts of uncertainty that led to anxiety. And um, typical anxiety that feels like a weight around your neck, a kind of shuts you in, makes you feel smaller. Mm -hmm. That is typical bad anxiety. Now, how do I shift that to good anxiety? Well, let me start with one caveat. And that is, I'm not talking about what I'm about to say is not going to cure somebody with clinical Mm -hmm. or pathological levels of anxiety. Anxiety is a normal human emotion that exists on a very, very, very wide spectrum from what I call everyday anxiety that can be annoying. It's like, (laughs) ah, you want to get rid of it, but not pathological in the sense that it, it prevents you from working and living and having Mm -hmm. normal relationships. When it becomes pathological like that, that is when Obviously, you should go seek a, a, a medical expert. Um, so I'm talking about everyday anxiety that itself exists on a spectrum. Mm-hmm. And how do you flip the bad kind of everyday anxiety into good anxiety? Well, it starts with realizing um, what anxiety evolved for. What, what is it? Was, did it evolve just to annoy us for the rest <laughs> of eternity? No. It evolved to protect us so that that physiological stress response that comes with the emotion of anxiety evolved to be able to protect us from potentially dangerous situations. Mm-hmm. Imagine 2.5 million years ago, uh, the dangers were, you know, the lion or the tiger, the big animal that was about to eat you. Mm-hmm. So when you heard that crack of a twig mm-hmm. that, uh, that, that uh, launched your feeling of anxiety and that stress response to get your body ready to run away or, or to fight, that was evolved to help save your life. Now, the problem is that our technology and our society has evolved much faster than our brain. And so our brain is still responding um, uh, in the same way that it did 2.5 million years ago to threats. But now the threats come through our TikTok feed and through (laughs) our Instagram feed and all the news that we get all the time or the emails that keep building up, even just seeing how many new emails we got that that could be Uh, that could cause anxiety. And you might think, oh, that's a different kind. That's like less severe anxiety than a bear. But our bodies are responding in the same way, uh, which is uh, heart rate goes up, Mm -hmm. uh, respiration goes up, and blood is literally automatically, this is the stress response that you really can't control um, very well, although I'm going to give you uh, um, techniques to do that. It's making your blood go from your digestion and reproductive organs towards your muscles so that you can fight or run away, which means that long-term stress is really bad for your digestion. That's where ulcers come from. Mm -hmm. It's really bad for your reproductive health, Um, bad for your heart health as well if your heart rate is up um, because of stress. But again, at its core, it's protective. So you might be saying, well, that sounds like a, you know, hoity-toity argument, but I still have lots of anxiety. How's that supposed to help Mm me? And The idea is, can we use neuroscience, psychology, and other useful approaches to bring our anxiety back to that protective element? 
there's something good in there evolved to help us. Mm -hmm. Can we find that? Can we kind of channel it and strategize to use that response that we're always going to have? If somebody tells you they're going to get rid of all your anxiety, do not believe them. It's part of the human, natural human emotional system. But what I'm trying to do in my book, Good Anxiety, is to kind of do a karate chop jujitsu move on your bad anxiety and find that protective element. And so um, that's that's the core of the book. That is kind of the uh, the the strategy at the core of uh, this this book, Good Anxiety. Everyone should go read it. It's phenomenal. And you know, I'm I'm curious. So you just sort of outlined and highlighted how we take bad anxiety and shift it into good anxiety. Um, yeah. I'm curious if gender has played a role at all in your research, and are there different ways based on gender that we should be channeling and harnessing sort of our good anxiety? Hmm, That's a really good question. So um, yes, there are differences in the uh, uh, levels of anxiety in women tends to be higher than in men, but both get it. Mm -hmm. It's not like it's really big, but you know, there are uh, historical differences in the kind of stresses and the kind of anxieties that women go through uh, versus men. And what I did, I, I haven't tried to understand the brain differences. What I've tried to do in the book is give approaches that work across the board, mm-hmm. man, woman, you know, whatever, however, whatever situation that you are in to give you approaches that work. For example, my top two, the, you know, the, the most common question people ask me about the good anxiety um, topic is, I just need help right now. What, what can I do? So what are, what's, what are the tools in your mm-hmm. toolbox? And so my t- two go-to science-based tools to decrease your level, your kind of volume of anxiety, which is my first step. Mm-hmm. So let me go over my three steps of getting to good anxiety. I, first, I define what good anxiety is. Let me give you my three steps. Step number one. Turn the volume down. Learn how to turn the volume down Mm -hmm. on your anxiety. And here are my two go-to approaches to turn that volume down. Approach number one is to use your breath. Mm -hmm. Slow, deep breath meditation. And you've heard that before, but I'm going to tell you the science behind that. So meditation is kind of the, uh, sorry, um, deep breathing is the oldest form of meditation. Why? Monks thousands of years ago, understood that that could really calm you down very effectively. It brings you into this calm spot. So why is that? Is there a science reason behind that? Yes, there is. So what you're doing when you're deep breathing is you are activating what's called the parasympathetic nervous system. It's also, uh, so what does that do? That is your natural de-stressing part of your nervous system. It evolves to uh, to be equal and opposite to that fight or flight part mm-hmm. of your nervous system, that stress inducing part of your nervous system. So did you even know that there's a part of your nervous system devoted to de-stress you? So this is what deep breathing does. Um, naturally, it actually, this part of your nervous system will automatically slow your breathing down, slow your heart rate down, shunt blood from your muscles mm-hmm. towards your digestion and reproductive organs. And so by deep breathing, consciously deep breathing, you start to activate the whole parasympathetic system. And again, this is what monks hundreds of years ago, hundreds and thousands of years ago already understood. 
And so the form of deep breathing that I recommend the most is called boxed breathing. Uh, very easy. It's uh, everything in four counts. So it's a big inhale on four counts, hold at the top for four counts, big exhale on four counts, hold at the bottom for four counts. And I love this because it's easy to remember. Um, I tend to get more anxious if uh, in my yoga class, uh, they ask me to breathe in for eight. It's like, I, I can't breathe anymore. And so I like the four, uh, but it still gets my, you know, my, my, my respiration to be deeper. Mm -hmm. And um, the thing is that if you don't like that one, that's what YouTube is for. So if you don't <laughs> like that one, go find another short breath. There's only a thousand different kinds to do and, and find one that you like or one with a million views or more mm -hmm. and um, uh, do that. But that is a surefire way. Uh, and, you know, for boss ladies out there that are running their meetings, I'll tell you, I start my um, lab meetings with a um, with a two minute meditation every wow. time. It brings everybody to get two minutes. I That's love all. that. I, I literally put it in my uh, uh, time it on my clock, and I you know I I mix it up a little bit. We're not always doing the the four breath uh, meditation, but it tells everybody that there's going to be a moment just to come into yourself, mm -hmm. into your deep breathing, prepare yourself for a productive meeting. And um, you don't have to be a meditation teacher or some sort of guru to do it, uh, but it is a practice uh, of good anxiety to to start that or decrease uh, anxiety uh, to do that. I am for sure going to start doing that. I'm going to do that tomorrow in one of my meetings. That sounds phenomenal. Okay, good. <laughs> Good, good. Okay. So here's the other thing that you can do. My number two go-to for decreasing the volume mm -hmm. is moving your body. And so decreasing the volume, I already told you the secret, 10 minutes of walking mm -hmm. is all you need. So how can you incorporate that? All your, all your boss lady fans out there, walking meetings. How many of my, co uh, my colleagues of NYU have walking meetings around Washington Square Park? Can you have a one-on-one -on -one where you both take your uh, tumbler of water and just walk around the park and, and do the meeting that way? And anything you need to look up, you just mm -hmm. look up at the end or, or before you go. Um, that is a wonderful way to bond. It's a great way to decrease your anxiety. It's a, a great way to improve the mood mm -hmm. of everybody involved in the meeting. Again, 10 minutes has been shown in studies to significantly decrease anxiety levels. I love so, that. And I honestly, I wish I had done that more during this pandemic, work from home, locked in the house, yeah. you know? And I, I think also it's a good reminder that sometimes it's good to turn the camera off and actually get out. Whereas I feel like we end up trying so hard to be camera on all the time that we're glued to our seats and our computer screen. So I love this. This is great yes, advice. I totally agree. And the other thing that I was going to say is I'm sitting down right now. I don't have one of the fancy desks that, you know, automatically goes up and down, but um, I use paper towels <laughs> to create a standing uh, um, desk for my, for my laptop. That's awesome. And while that's not aerobic, that really works your muscles. If you spend even half a day or even an hour or two standing and working um, oh, at wow. home or in the office, if you go in, um, that is a great workout. I mean, I started it. I'll never forget. It's like, oh my God, I'm so 
tired. My, my legs are so tired. Um, but of course you, you get used to that, mm-hmm. uh, but you notice how much, you know, you're, you're using your muscles. So Wendy, you talk a lot about obviously how exercise can help the brain. Should we be doing cardio or should we be doing weightlifting and which is going to provide more value when it comes to maximizing, um, the effects of exercise on the brain? So here's my answer about what should you do in, in exercise? We know the most about the beneficial effects of aerobic activity. Anything that gets your heart rate up, mm-hmm. that includes power walking. So it could be in the walking genre, mm-hmm. but but you do want to get your heart rate up. And um, the answer for weight training is that pure weight training, I mean, there's nothing... If you're weight training hard, mm-hmm. your heart rate is going up, uh, not as much as if you're in a spin class or something. So um, the results of um, weight training on cognitive improvement have been a little bit mixed, but that's because there's not as many studies there. And so it could be that um, weight training is as good as it gets your heart rate mm-hmm. up. I actually love to combine cardio and weight kind of workout because I get that resistance for my muscles. And uh, I kind of make my cardio harder Mm -hmm. with with those darn weights. Mm -hmm. I never say, oh my God, you're just doing weights. Terrible. Don't do that. (laughs) Uh, Keep doing what you're doing. That is using your body Mm -hmm. and just try and, you know, add in and be creative about other ways that you can, you can bring exercise into your life. I think that this is all so helpful and such great strategies that everyone can use in the workplace. I want to jump topics a bit to talk about mentorship because you actually at the beginning mentioned one of your mentors, um, Marion was diamond, diamond, Marion diamond. And, you know, I think it would be helpful to hear what she did that helped you so much and any advice you have for other people who are trying to mentor the next generation of boss ladies? Yeah, yeah. That's such a great question. So um, I had, I thought about this a lot and I had, um, um, I had lots of classes with Professor Diamond and um, I got to work in her lab and I just was such a big admirer of her. And as I said, I, you know, I just wanted to be her. I wanted to be that kind of scientist and that kind of teacher. And so I had this wonderful role model. And and then you could say, oh, so you kept in touch and you sent Christmas cards <laughs> to each other for the rest of your life. And the answer was no, I didn't. I, I took in all of that. I'm like, okay, I have my direction. I went off to graduate school. Um, I did contact her again when I was a postdoc uh, because I got the Cal alumni, UC Berkeley alumni magazine. She had been chosen alumna of the year. And um, uh, at that postdoctoral level, I realized that, you know, yes, she gave me that first model, but she did something even more profound for me that I took me years to realize, which is she protected me from the fear Mm -hmm. that um, there weren't that many women in science and therefore you should be scared that you won't be successful. That thought never entered my mind for a long time. And you could say, well, gosh, she wasn't very observant, was she? Because (laughs) there are not a lot of females in in science. But, you know, I, I had this kind of larger than life role model. And it took me, yeah, of course I realized. And, and, um, it, it, it is an issue, but during those formative years, it was like, I didn't have to worry about that. That was like a no, no worry situation. Mm-hmm. And I wrote back to her and I 
uh, I told her that I realized this uh, later on and, and, you know, she wrote back and it, it was really, really lovely. And, um, uh, and then I finished my postdoc. I got my faculty position. I got tenure and I went on the moth. I did the moth radio hour talk. And, um, I mentioned professor diamond in that talk. And soon after I gave that talk, it went on the radio and, um, I got a phone call from a documentary filmmaker who said, you don't know me, but you need to be in my documentary film. And she was, she and her husband, a husband and wife team were making a documentary film about Marion Diamond wow. during the last year that she ever taught at UC Berkeley. And she had so many hundreds, maybe thousands of students, mm -hmm. you know, who am I going to pick? Well, there I popped up because on this moth talk, talking about her and how, oh, what an amazing teacher she was. So because of that, I got to go back and, um, uh, be in the documentary, mm -hmm. talking, talking about her and uh, um, saying that, you know, I've continued on her, her tradition of bringing that hat box with a, a real preserved human brain in my, <laughs> my, my own students. And of course, I tell them where it came from. And so then I got to 30 years later, this was now 30 years later, um, got to reconnect with her. So oh, that's went wonderful. and had lunch with her and her husband. And um, it's been a learning process. So my lesson is that um, there are so many ways to mentor mm -hmm. um, the next generation. You can spend time teaching them stuff. So Marion spent time teaching me mm -hmm. stuff when I was an undergraduate, but she continued teaching me stuff even when she wasn't directly teaching me stuff long after, as I started to realize how hard it must have been for her mm -hmm. as the first female PhD in anatomy, in neuroanatomy that UC Berkeley ever gave, wow. ever, was to her. And then coming up in, in those ranks. I could only appreciate that now as I'm in my faculty position and there are more women, not, not as many as I would like, but many, many mm -hmm. more. I can't imagine what it must have been like. So just being and, and succeeding and trying is showing people stuff. And then of course you can uh, mentor everybody, but there's a, uh, there's a scaling problem. You have to do what you're good at mm -hmm. being a boss lady. <laughs> and so if you spend all your time mentoring other people, you can't do what yeah. the bossy things that not bossy, but the, uh, the, the leadership training, the leadership that you're supposed to do. So, so that was very comforting to me when I realized how much she gave me and, you know, they estimated they're like six, 5,000 students that she she taught in person wow. over her career. All of them got what I got. Yeah. So yeah. it's very powerful to realize. No, that. I love that. And I love what you said about how she sort of had shielded you from this idea that there weren't more many women around you. So you could just stay focused on achieving your goals and not thinking about that. Um, yeah. What, what has it been like working in such a male-dominated space? I mean, that's what led to helping start this podcast, right, is navigating that. Mm. So, you know, what has that been like for you? And do you have any advice for others navigating that situation? Yeah. You know, I think that you find who your tribe is. Mm -hmm. And often my tribe includes lots of other boss ladies, lots of other females, but there's also great, great males mm -hmm. out there. And, and it's about learning how to navigate in the world. And um, there's lots of different people, you know, not that every woman is going to be, you know, part of, part of my tribe. But um, you get really good at 
at finding who who that is and that support that you build up and you um, spend your time getting to know. Uh, so I, I'm sure you know that that as as we go up in the ranks, our time gets more and more and more valuable. Yeah. And so, um, but giving that time to building those relationships with your tribe, that that group of people that are going to support you. And I'm not saying they all have to be women. Uh, they they in fact they should be both women and men. But I found a lot of um, comfort and friendship and great advice from those women that I friend members <laughs> that I've that I've found over the years. But it's also about learning how to navigate those difficult conversations and those difficult situations as boss you are you are the example and so if you let people badmouth other people whether they're men or women um, um, or you do it yourself that is what's going to be modeled so what what are you modeling mm -hmm. it's it's back to you know I I just love the way that Marion was always so positive. She never said one word about, I, let me tell you about what it's like to be one of the only women in these departments. It was always about the ideas and the science and the next question. And I just love that. It transcends mm -hmm. gender it, 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 for our field. Yeah. That yeah. was part of the inspiration. So what does that feel like for you? And can you focus on that, that thing that, that kind of unites I don't care whether you're a man or a woman, but you want in your company for your company to succeed, for you to have a great product, whatever that whatever that goal is. Can you unite behind that and and um, build build a team that way? Is how I've I've started to think about it, and I'm still a student of that. I'm still learning, but. Um, I've also learned a lot. I've also come a long way. Yeah, absolutely. And that's such a powerful and, and thoughtful approach. And, you know, this has been such an amazing conversation, both from your educating us on how the brain works and how we can maximize it. And also sort of how that's, you know, been played so many different roles throughout your career and your journey. Um, my last question for you, and this is my favorite yeah. question I always ask in every interview is what do you feel is one of your greatest accomplishments? I think one of my greatest accomplishments is my friend and family network that I have, uh, that I've built up. And I think I appreciate it because it wasn't so good, you know, at some points during my life. And for example, in that period where I gained 25 pounds and I was just trying to work hard, not a lot of friends, not a lot of support there, but I learned, I learned my lesson. I learned from that experience. And, um, and so I've really explicitly said, this is so important to me. I am a, I'm a good worker and I'm a good person, um, or I'm a better person because of these wonderful relationships that I have. So that's, that's what I'm most proud of. That is an amazing answer. And thank you so much. Your passion for your work and everything has been sort of contagious, your positivity. So thank you for taking the time to be on Boss Ladies. You are so welcome. This was so much fun. Thank you for having me. Thanks for tuning into this week's episode of Boss Ladies. Check back next week for a new episode. Visit us at www.bossladiespodcast.com for more information about the show or follow us at Boss Ladies Podcast on Instagram. Rate, like, and follow the show on all of your favorite podcast platforms. Mm -hmm.